Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Global news story, liberals to ignore a house motion to summon staffers to testify on We Charity. And that, of course, has to do with the Ethics Committee, the Parliamentary Ethics Committee, investigating the relationship between We Charity and Mr. Trudeau and his family and the Liberal Party and the goings-on uh, surrounding that um, program that was designed, we were told, to assist financially students in some need. Well, we're joined by Pierre Polyev, Conservative Member of Parliament, who is a member of the Ethics Committee. Mr. Polyev, thank you very much for the time. How are you? Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let me just read you a few lines from the Global News story and ask you to comment. Federal Liberal Cabinet Ministers will instruct their staff not to appear if called to any parliamentary committees in an attempt to curb what they call an abuse of power by opposition parties. Late Thursday, the House of Commons voted to back a Conservative motion to summon political staff and civil servants to testify about the We Charity affair and about how the government handled a sexual misconduct allegation against the country's top soldiers. So we have two issues going on, of course. All the parties, except the Liberals, supported the motion. Before the vote, Government House Leader Pablo Rodriguez said the Liberals will ignore the motion. Go ahead, Mr. Polyev. Well, I think it says, your description says it all. Um, The reason that these staff members need to testify is because they have knowledge that goes to the heart of Justin Trudeau's we scandal. You'll recall that Trudeau's family got a half million dollars of fees and expenses paid them by the we charity. Then Trudeau turned around and gave a curious half billion dollar contribution to the we charity to run a program that was already being successfully run within the government. Uh, So the defense Trudeau came up with was that he didn't come up with this new duplicative program. It was some mid-level bureaucrat in the employment department who cooked up the scheme and put it on his desk, and he was actually kind of confused about it all and, in fact, tried to push back on it. Well, I have obtained correspondence between the WE Charity and the Trudeau PMO, which shows that Trudeau's top advisors were deeply involved in setting up this strange half-billion-dollar program that benefited the group that had been paying the Prime Minister's family. And I want those staffers who correspondents show were involved in setting this whole thing up to come and explain what role they played and to what extent Justin Trudeau was personally involved in the whole scandal. You particularly want the senior advisor to Mr. Trudeau to appear before the committee, and uh, you have specific reasons for wanting that. Uh, Do you have any sense that this is going to happen? Will the Liberals allow this to happen? What are your options? Well, uh, you've asked a couple of questions there. The first is, I think in the end it will have to happen because Parliament has the unmitigated power to call any person or any paper uh, from uh, that, that exists within uh, the borders of uh, Canada itself. We have uh, that unlimited authority. Uh, and uh, if someone refuses, then we could ultimately ask the sergeant-at-arms to have the police force them to testify. Uh, that being said, the prime minister's def- counterpoint is that staff shouldn't testify because of the principle of ministerial responsibility. 
in which case, which means that staff don't speak for the minister. The minister speaks for himself. Well, who's the minister in this case? The, the prime minister. minister. Yes, that's right. And so he should have to come back and testify. He has testified once before the finance committee on this scandal, but that was before this new correspondence came to light, contradicting his testimony. So we're saying, listen, Mr. Trudeau, you can have your staff come, but if you want ministerial responsibility, then come testify yourself. Well, what are the chances of that? I mean, you, can you compel the prime minister to appear? You can't compel uh, by law, but you can compel through public uh, pressure. You can basically create a drumbeat among Canadians for the prime minister to do, to show up and answer questions. And his refusal to do so uh, becomes evidence of guilt and culpability. So I think that's the reason why he testified last time. He knew that if he didn't, he would look guilty. But uh, uh, this time uh, he has even more problems because we've since unearthed evidence that contradict what he told our parliamentary committee uh, the last time. So let's create that drumbeat. Let's tell him, Mr. Prime Minister, you tried to give a half billion dollars to a group that had paid off your family. You have questions to answer. Either you do it or your staff does it. Either way, we want answers. Well, and Canadians should have answers, because the last time the committee got close to answers, Mr. Trudeau prorogued Parliament. Let me move on to something else in the minute and a half we have left. On the issue of sexual misconduct in the military, Conservative members want the former Chief of Staff to the Minister of National Defense to appear before the Defense Committee. We also have the current military ombudsman, Gregory Lake, publicly supporting his predecessor, Gary Walborn, on how Mr. Walborn handled complaints of sexual misconduct, which he brought to Minister Sajjan in 2018. And at the same time, I'm, I'm adding another issue here for you. Operation Honor has been closed down. Can you put that together for us? Well, clearly, uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions. Minister Sajjan, the defense minister, was informed of the allegations, and subsequent to the to, to, to learning the the truth, he then approved a bonus for the person who was accused. Um, you know, you would think that he would have a full-scale investigation to make sure that the uh, chief of the defense staff was innocent of any wrongdoing before giving him a bonus, but rather, uh, Sajjan bonused him and rewarded him, and he did so knowing that these allegations were circulating and they had reached the level of the ombudsman. So um, I think we need to get answers on why he made that decision, what Prime Minister Trudeau knew. Uh, we know that the Prime Minister's department and his office were aware, but Trudeau won't tell us what he knew uh, when all of this went down. So a lot of questions. I just encourage the, men, the people who played the role to get it before a parliamentary community put their hand on um, uh, on the book uh, right. and uh, give an oath that they will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. A new study by researchers at King's College in London and the Francis Crick Institute has discovered delaying a second dose of COVID vaccine for more than 21 days may be putting lives at risk and leaves cancer patients far more vulnerable to the COVID-19 virus. Currently, think about this now, in Canada, there are about 2 million people who are fighting cancer. We're joined by Dr. Shiva Irshad. She's the lead author of the study. She's a breast cancer oncologist and senior clinical lecturer at King's College in London and a Cancer Research UK clinician scientist. 
Dr. Irshad, thank you very much for taking the time on a Saturday evening for you. That's okay. Thank you for asking me to. So your trial, your trial or study was specifically directed toward cancer patients and the efficacy of the COVID vaccinations for cancer patients if the period between the first and second vaccination exceeded the manufacturer's recommended 21-day period, as I understand it. What were the findings or numbers of greatest concern to you? So, so you're absolutely right. The reason we set up the trial was because none of the trials to date have really included any cancer patients specifically. So we wanted to investigate the immune response to the vaccines, particularly the Pfizer vaccine. Um, so we have a total of about 151 patients that we recruited. And what we found is that um, after the first shot, a uh, majority of the patients are essentially don't achieve the same level of antibodies. So by that, I mean less than 40% actually developed antibodies for solid cancer patients. Um, but we had a small subset of patients that before the government policy changed to increase that interval from three weeks to 12 weeks, uh, who had received the second dose. And we found in those patients, actually, after the second dose at three weeks, they were able to bring up their antibody levels to so up to 95% of the patients um, were then able to have high levels of antibodies. But for those patients who are still waiting uh, for the booster, um, clearly we're leaving them unprotected for quite long periods of time with just one dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, so, yeah, so what we've really asked the sort of policymakers is really to look at this data because there is clearly a signal that for patients that are immunocompromised, so it's not really rocket science that... Um, patients that are on chemotherapy, for example, it takes a little bit longer for them to really mount that immune response, and they really need that booster, and they need it clearly early. Um, and at three weeks, it seems to work pretty well. Mm-hmm. So uh, you and I both know that we're going to be having cancer patients listening to this program right now, and they've just listened to what you had to say, and they're really clearly probably paying closer attention their family members and friends as well. So if the period, as I understand it, and please explain this to us, if the period Period, and you just did, but in a little more detail. If the period between vaccination was uh, t- the t- 21 days recommended by the drug manufacturer, what was the efficacy of the vaccine if you stayed in that 21-day window? So it was 95%. Um, and when I say efficacy, you know, there are different definitions of efficacy. You can have efficacy in terms of whether or not there is, um, you know, whether you get covid but we're looking at immune efficacy, so the actual level of antibodies. And if they got the second dose, that's actually good news. And I want the listeners, a lot of cancer patients that are listening to say, to really take that positive message that for those patients, it seems to work quite well if you follow the manufacturer's instructions, which are to give the second dose at three weeks. It's probably not that important for the healthy population to get the booster that early because our study also had patients that were essentially healthy, i.e. healthcare workers. And for those patients, you know, the first booster or the first dose was good enough to generate high levels of antibodies. Uh, Dr. Urshad, in, in Canada, we are now up to 16 weeks intervals between COVID vaccinations. My first and second vaccination, coincidentally, are scheduled exactly four months apart, and they were scheduled yesterday with the first vaccination in two weeks. It's the main, as I said, it's the main same story for many Canadians. So uh, generically, if I may ask you to step into this territory for a moment, how worrisome might that 16-week interval be 
uh, for the for the average patient who or the average person who's looking for the vaccination? I think um, from our study, and uh, you know, I think we have to be guided a little bit by what populations we're talking about. So our study is specifically including um, on the patient group that is essentially the extremely vulnerable group. I think there is actually plenty of data to suggest that one shot may be okay for the healthy population. But again, I kind of feel that there needs to be a trial that needs to be done to properly look at that. So if the Pfizer trial sort of boosted at three weeks, perhaps, you know, um, we should stick with that. But equally, these are complex decisions. We're in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, we probably do need to be a bit more um, flexible in terms of making the right choices. But one of the key things is we don't kind of, you know, I repeatedly say this, one size really doesn't fit all. So what might be right for the clinically vulnerable, like the cancer patients or many other patients that are on immunosuppressants, is, uh, you know, is perhaps not needed for the healthy population where they don't have any other health conditions and they mount a very good immune response. And there is plenty of data to show that one dose is actually very good at generating um, immune response. So in my opinion, I would say we have to prioritize our vulnerable group in terms of giving them the second dose. You know, the problem is that there is an issue with manufacturing of vaccines as well. And, you know, in an ideal world, if there was lots to go around, then yes, we could sort of say it doesn't really matter. Let's just everyone have it at three. Mm-hmm. But I think we have to be a bit cleverer about it and, you know, really risk stratify what is the right choice for the right patient population right um, and our study was small but i think you know it shows you there's a signal there and i would really encourage the more global community that we need to look at specific patient populations and make guidance and sort of guide our policy makers with data on specific patient populations rather than sort of lumping everyone together so in the uk when the policy change happened from three weeks to 12 weeks it was for everyone. It wasn't sort of just for the healthy population or just for the younger group. It, you know, it was all the high-risk patients. And um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, we just have to... Uh, but I also understand, you know, these are complex decisions that need to be made. But as the data is coming through, I think people need to start sort of looking at it and adapting where we can. Okay, let me just ask you one more question. When it comes to the cancer patients and the 21-day efficacy period, is is this consistent with different types of cancers, or is it specific to certain types of cancers? So we had uh, two groups that we sort of essentially separated our patient groups into those with blood cancers and those with solid cancers. So the data that I'm showing you is that um, in solid cancer patients, we had enough patients that got boosted at 21 days, and we could see if that happened, they really did that poor immune efficacy that you had with the first dose was rescued. Blood cancers, I just don't have that data because, unfortunately, because of the policy change, many of those patients are still waiting for the booster, and they were the ones that had even lower immune um, sort of antibody levels after the first dose. Um, but I think in the absence of any other data, we really have to treat them as sort of um, as a solid cancer patient. So they should also be getting a booster early on. And I think for those that patient population, the blood cancer patients, we need to have other conversations around making sure that their household, i.e. their bubbles, are also um, sort of immunized. So we need to protect 
our patients that we think um, there isn't robust data right now, but okay. they are generating antibodies. So, you know, I, again, I really advocate that for hematological cancers, i.e. blood cancers, we should be, one, testing their antibodies, but also really making sure that their family members, their doctors, the people that they come in contact, so it's kind of creating that mini herd immunity around them, right. um, is going to be important. Climate change in the news, and uh, last weekend, of course, the, the Conservative Party policy convention, 54% of uh, delegates refused to add the words, we recognize that climate change is real, which has created a bit of a dust-up in Parliament and is be, will be used during the election campaign. So, let's talk about climate with Dr. Bjorn Longborg. He's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center Think Tank and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Dr. Lomborg was included in the Time Magazine's Top 100 Most Influential People in the World list. His latest book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Now, Dr. Lomborg does believe human behaviors are responsible for climate change. It's how the issue is being put forward and how it's being addressed that he finds disturbing. Uh, do I have that correct, Dr. Lomborg? Am I, I hope I'm not misrepresenting your position. No. No. Hi, Roy. Hi. No, it's, a good, it's a good summary. Yeah, we've talked many times, you and I, and the, I, I still remember in 2015, after the COP conference in Paris, you came on the show and you said, if I remember correctly, it's going to cost trillions and trillions and trillions and do absolutely nothing. That's Pretty much correct. It'll do a little bit, but very, very little at very high cost. And of course, that's exactly the, the, the thing we want to avoid. It's terrible just simply because we have a real problem that people are proposing solutions that are incredibly expensive and do almost no good. So uh, explain for us, uh, to us, please, the depth of the problem, the climate change problem. And again, I said, and I'll repeat it, and you've, and you've, you've supported this, you accept that climate change is happening because of human behavior. So how s significant is the problem? What should we be doing uh, instead of what we are attempting to do politically and otherwise? Yeah. So, so fundamentally, and, and again, I'm, I'm an economist, or actually I'm a political scientist, but I work with lots of economists. So I'm not a natural scientist. A lot of our natural scientists are saying we're burning fossil fuels, we emit more CO2 into the atmosphere, that's a thin layer around the planet, and it warms up the planet. So that's the fundamental issue. The, the idea that higher temperatures are more costly, not inherently so, but simply because any society has been adapted to the historical circumstances under, under which it lived. So, you know, both, uh, 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 both Ottawa and Miami are good at where the temperatures they are now, but if it warms up, or indeed if it had cooled down, it would be a costly affair. Now, how costly? The UN has already looked at that, and they've told us. They told us that in 50 years' time, the net impact of global warming will be equivalent to somewhere between 0.2 and 2% reduction in our income. Remember, by then, will be 362% is what they estimate. will be 362% as rich as we are today. So, in 50 years' time, instead of being 362%, global warming will mean we'll only be 356% as rich. That's a problem. 
It's not an existential crisis. And of course, the real issue here is you have to be very careful to not end up spending hundreds of trillions of dollars to avoid this problem, essentially spending lots, lots more than what the actual cost of the problem is. So another part of the title of your book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Let me concentrate or ask you about the last two parts of the title, Hurts the Poor and Fails to Fix the Planet. Can you take them on separately, please? So it actually hurt. Most climate policy will hurt the poor simply because the poor, both in rich countries and poor countries, have less money and hence use a bigger portion of their money on energy. So it hurts the poor in rich countries like in Canada and everywhere else because they now have to make hard decisions of how how warm do I want my home to be in the winter. Uh, and we know lots of people actually have parts of their home not warmed up as much as they'd like. We know, for instance, British pensioners will stay in bed uh, much, much longer than they actually want to, but because it's the only place that it's warm. Uh, we know that this leads to lower temperatures in your home, and that means that you have a higher chance of actually getting heart problems and also dying. So we know, from, for instance, from the U.S., that when we made uh, gas cheaper with fracking, it actually saved about 11,000 people across the U.S. every year on average, because these people could now afford more gas and hence uh, warm up their homes better. And of course, if we try to fix climate change by ramping up the cost of fuels, it means that more people are going to die from cold. It is also true in the developing world, where people are struggling just to get out of poverty. And one of the best ways to get out of poverty is to have access to lots and lots of cheap and reliable energy. That's essentially what China uh, has done, and it lifted more than half a billion people out of poverty over the last 30 years. So fundamentally, denying these people cheap and easy access to energy by saying, no, you can't have coal, you need to pay much more for less reliable solar and wind, means that more people will go uh, poor, more people will go hungry. We actually know that the Paris Agreement it won't do very much. So it'll only make about 4 million more uh, poor than otherwise would have been there. If we actually try to aim for one and a half or two degrees, it's likely we'll see another 180 million poor people. That's terrible. And of course, all done in the name of trying to do good. Uh, I did a program, aired a program a few years ago, and I think I still have all the information on uh, the the difficulties that Britain's older and poorer British people were dealing with, living with, uh, because of the increased cost of heating their homes and taking care of themselves because of the energy costs. And the one aspect of it was a significant percentage of British seniors, poor British seniors, were riding public transit all day in the wintertime just to stay warm. And if it, that, that, that's fact, is it? If, do I rem yes. remember yes. that correctly? So, yes. So the British retiree uh, organization actually did a big survey, this is a couple of years old now, uh, to try and find out how people address the issue of energy poverty. And again, remember, this is not people who have no money, but it's people who have so fairly little money that they actually have to make hard decisions on how much do I heat my home, how much do I spend on food, and what do I do if I have a catastrophic cost of 
of, of, of a health care na- nature or my glasses break or something. So you have to really, you know, uh, uh, turn every every pound note and, and decide what am I going to uh, pay, pay for. And that leads to these extreme outcomes where you ride the bus all night to keep warm or you uh, you buy books. There is a story about uh, uh, that people would buy old books simply because they were cheaper to burn in your furnace than actually buying fuel. So, so, you know, lots of terrible things. And not all of these are things that we would want to have in an advanced society. No. How do you fix the planet then? So fundamentally, the problem here is that we emit CO2 not to annoy Al Gore or Greta Thunberg, but we do so because it comes from using fossil fuel, which is one of the most amazing discoveries for mankind, namely the ability to have lots and lots of energy. We want to keep having that opportunity, lots and lots of cheap energy, but eventually not emit CO2. The best way forward to deal with any big problem is not to ask people to do with less, but ask people to innovate smart new ideas. Remember, uh, back in the 1950s in Los Angeles, it was terribly polluted. And you couldn't get people to stop polluting by telling them, I'm sorry, could you walk or run or you know, a, a bike instead of taking your car? The real solution was the catalytic converter. It was an in- innovation that you put on your car. Yes, it costs some money, but then basically you could drive your car longer and pollute much, much less. And that's, of course, why Los Angeles today is now much less polluted. We need to do the same thing for green energy. So we should invest a lot more into green energy research and development so that eventually we'll find energy that is cheaper than fossil fuels, but at the same time, green. We've already done part of that, remember, because the U.S. innovated fracking. Fracking is essentially a way of getting gas to be much cheaper. And what happened was that because gas emits much less CO2 than coal, the U.S. has actually seen the largest drop of any nation over the last 10 years in its CO2 emissions, both under Obama and under Trump. And this has very little to do with climate and everything to do with technological innovation. If you make green energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone will switch, not just rich, well-meaning Canadians, but the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, everybody else. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist, Toronto General Hospital, also an associate professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and a member of the Ontario Vaccine Task Force. Dr. Bogosh, I, I'm not attacking you nor challenging you, but I would appreciate your thoughts. Uh, Premier Ford yesterday, you heard the remarks before you listen to this show now, directly calling out the federal government for a haphazard and slow vaccine rollout which Ottawa is responsible for, and calling it a joke, and worrying about the health of people of the province. You're a member of the Ontario Vaccine Task Force. Again, I don't expect you to be political on this program, but how concerned are you about the availability of vaccines and uh, what the Premier had to say yesterday? Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at this from several different angles. And, you know, I'm a physician and a scientist and clearly not a politician, it's, you know, when, let's just look at the facts and look at the data. And, and basically what we see is Canada started the vaccine program in mid-December. We were one of the first countries in the world to start vaccinating. Okay. Then, of course, since then, it's been slow. You can't argue against that. It, it, there has been a slow rollout because we rely on foreign companies and foreign countries to produce and ship vaccines to us. 
now, as of March 22nd, we're getting a million doses per week of Pfizer through the end of May. We're getting millions, like millions of doses of AstraZeneca. We're getting millions of doses of uh, Moderna. And the real inflection point is May 22nd. You know, data is data. There's a, a day after day, there's a growing number of people getting vaccinated in the country. We knew this was going to happen. There should be no surprises here. And again, I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying if we were having this conversation in, you know, September and October of 2020, the answer was the vaccine program isn't going to start in Canada until the first quarter of 2021. Well, are you are you though started. confident, Dr. Boykosh, are you confident that those numbers of vaccines are actually going to arrive on schedule as scheduled? Yeah, I am. Because to date, there's nothing to suggest otherwise. We hear, you know, saber rattling by the EU. But in fact, the EU's communication to Canada is, yeah, they're coming. And in fact, look at the last slowdown. The EU told or the uh, the company Pfizer told us we are going to slow down your shipments of vaccine significantly for four weeks so we can refurbish the plant and then send you more vaccine. Hey, guess what happened? They reduced their shipments for four weeks while they refurbished their plant. And then we got more vaccine than we asked for. So so, the, so your your sense is, and I'm asking you this as a member of the task force, Yeah, your sense is the EU is saber rattling that they will not in fact slow down shipments arbitrarily, slow down shipments to Canada. They've told us as much and that's been made public in Canada. I'm not apologizing for the slow roll-up. I wish it was faster. It should be faster. We should be farther ahead than we are. But, you know, it shaves a little... I think multiple things can be true at the same time. Yeah, But Canada is not on the exempt list of nations with the European Union. So I'm not inclined to be completely confident. I'm glad you are because you're a member of the task force. And I just got uh, my first uh, appointment for my vaccine in two weeks' time. And then the second one is four months down the road, which brings us back to something we've talked about, you and I have talked about several times, and that's that 16-week period. You've had some concerns about that. Are you feeling more comfortable with it? Well, no, actually, uh, uh, Dr. David Naylor and I wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail a few days ago saying, you know what, it's probably okay for most people, but you can't put a blanket statement on, especially with growing evidence that certain groups, like perhaps people with organ transplants or people who are severely immunosuppressed for a medical reason, like you should really shorten the duration between dose one and dose two in, in, in certain groups, including those groups. Just watch. I bet this upcoming week we see a lot of provinces move on that because that data is is out there. It's freely available and it's growing. So I think you're going to see some provinces move on that front. I hope so. Now, what about the variants? Um, how much of a concern are we facing? How difficult, how dangerous is where we are now with these variants? Like, you just can't ignore them. They're real. They're here. They're real. Whether, whether people believe it or not, they, they cause a more, uh, the more transmissible virus. And sadly... Um, they cause some of them cause a more severe version of COVID-19. Can't ignore them. Now, having said that, how do you get around it? Well, the exact same thing we've been doing before. Vaccinate like stink. Luckily, vaccines are starting to the vaccine programs are rolling up coast to coast. And of course, do everything we have been doing: mask, distancing, ventilation, hand hygiene, avoiding close, crowded, confined settings. We'll be okay. And as a scientist, you're comfortable with the vaccines that we're getting, though they will be at least hopefully, significantly effective against these variants. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to make a blanket statement, but by and large, the vaccines that we have available in Canada are by and large 
uh, helpful against the variants that we have in Canada. Now, that's not a perfect exact statement, but by and large, that's true. So, I mean, we'll all be getting a, a booster vaccine, I'm sure, at some point in the tail end of 2020 or the early part of, or sorry, tail end of 2021 or early part of 2022 that accounts for the variants of concern. I think that's a, a very fair assumption to make. But yeah, they're here. And, you know, if you look at other countries that are, are well ahead of us, like US, UK, Israel, things are getting better in many parts of those countries or in all those countries. Things are getting better. We're just a couple of months behind. Yeah, Joe, talking, Joe Biden Joe Biden is saying he wants 200 million doses distributed by his 100 days in office. Roy, when we're talking this time two months from now, I think we'll be having very different conversations. We'll probably be, hopefully, if all goes well, on the far tail end of a, of a third wave. And uh, the vast majority of at-risk populations and adult populations who wanted vaccines will have had a vaccine. I think, I really think it's fair to say but that through the summer, eligible adults that want a vaccine will have access Good. to a vaccine. Good. So in within the context of our conversation and the 30 seconds we have left, what about the issue of opening communities again with the, this variance making their presence known? What do you think? I, you got to be careful. There's no secrets. We know how this virus is transmitted, who gets infected, where they get infected, and how they get infected. If that means putting more people into indoor settings, you can't be surprised if you have outbreaks and super spreader events. We can open up slowly and carefully, and you go, but you got to be careful. And if you're having a rise in cases, you should probably rethink putting more people in, into an indoor environment. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 